0: Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Abraham Gileotti, Ph.D. 11. How Isaiah's Prophecies Work Should Latter-day Saints apply Isaiah's definitions when interpreting his own words or their own? Are Isaiah's main themes a key to Book of Mormon Prophecy?
1: Welcome to podcast number 11, How Isaiah's Prophecies Work in the Book of Mormon. And we see how heavily Nephi, Jacob and Jesus rely on the prophets of Isaiah to depict what's going on in in our day, in our end time situation today.
0: We're going to cover some of the main themes of the book of Isaiah, six of them, in kind of an approximate order in which they occur. And we're going to discuss, first of all, a religion influenced by precepts of men,
1: taken from Isaiah 29 verses 13 and 14. And to give you some idea of how the Book of Mormon relies on the prophecy of Isaiah, these things are quoted in 1 Nephi 14 7, 1 Nephi 22 verse 8, 2 Nephi 25 verse 17, 2 Nephi 27 verses 25 and 26, 2nd Nephi 29.1 and 3rd Nephi one nine. That's
0: 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 references, if I'm counting correctly. It says, from Isaiah, My Lord says, because these people approach
1: me with the mouth. I'm going to stop right there. I'm sorry if I keep interrupting when I'm reading, but I like to clarify things. When it says these people, he's not saying my people, which is the covenant formula. He's saying these people, they were my people, they're supposed to be my people, but they're not my people. They approach me with the mouth and pay me how much with their lips while their heart remains far from me. Why? Because they're horribly distracted by the things of the world. They love their fine houses, they love their fine cars, they make sure they're spotless clean. Their house is full of the trappings of Babylon. They go and buy a lot of things they don't need to live. They want to show how great they are to neighbors, keeping up with everybody else,
0: and so forth. Yes, they go to church. They approach him with their mouth and their lips. But where are their hearts? Their hearts are set upon their worldly things.
1: Their piety toward me consisting of commandments of men or precepts of men learned by rote. Now the rote method is still used in some parts of the Middle East today, the ancient world of Isaiah's day, where the students repeat back to the teacher what the teacher says. Of course, we read in Isaiah 28 how that happens, where Isaiah is mocking, basically, the people who are learning Kablakov, Kablikov, Chablatov, line by line, precept upon precept, and so forth, a trifle here, a trifle there. Repeating back basically what the teacher is saying to them, not studying it out for
0: themselves. They're staying politically correct by not doing that, but they're, you know, off base as far as a real understanding of the scriptures.
1: Like the students who do that parroting of the teacher, they don't really understand necessarily because they haven't figured it out for themselves. So they're following those who know or think they know the doctrine. Of course, many people think they know the doctrine and they are often base those doctrines on the precepts of men. And that is Isaiah's great complaint and it's repeated over and over in the Book of Mormon. That is the situation today in which we, Latter-day Saints, members of the church, God's people today, these people, that is describing us today. Isaiah even talks about, in chapter 28, which is addressed to Ephraim specifically, about all tables being filled with vomit. Tables being imagery Isaiah uses, of course, to as a metaphor of books and things we learn, filled with half-digested food, regurgitated for other people to eat. Pretty disgusting. But that's how abominable it is to the Lord. And people don't learn the Scriptures for themselves, search it
0: out for themselves. Not a pretty picture. And this time around, it's us. Can't point the finger at anybody else. And so he goes on to say,
1: Wherefore it is that I shall again astound these people, you're going to catch them by surprise, with wonder upon wonder. Now, another translation is a great and marvelous work. It doesn't say, actually say that in the Hebrew. It's a, one wonder after another, one surprise after another. Yes, it's greatly marvelous and it's going to be hard to figure out for people who have not studied what the Great and Marvelous work is really all about, which is the restoration of the House of Bismarck. And he says, rendering void the knowledge of their sages, the intelligence of their wise men insignificant. So he doesn't have good things to say about the sages or the wise men, the professors of religion of today or anybody in academia for that matter because they follow their own careers and their own aggrandizements and publishing things for tenure and for higher salaries and so on. The Lord can't use them. The Lord has commanded people to search the scriptures for themselves not to rely on other people to do that for them, not to rely on me either. I'm simply pointing out that hey, We have to go to the scriptures ourselves. Even if it's politically incorrect and we come up with interpretations that are scriptural, but they conflict with the doctrines of men or the precepts of men. We have to be willing to stand up for those things because if we take the name of Christ upon ourselves, we take the name of truth upon ourselves because the Lord personifies truth. He is the law and the word and we must imbibe in that. We must assimilate those things and stand up for them. Exemplify those things in our lives, in our actions. So that's number one. Now we go to number two. Many Gentiles fight against Zion. From Isaiah twenty-nine verses seven and eight. And we've already seen some of that in the previous podcast, but these things are quoted in First Nephi twenty-two verse fourteen, and verse nineteen. 2 Nephi chapter six verses twelve and thirteen, Second Nephi chapter ten verse thirteen and verse sixteen. And 2 Nephi 27, verse 3. So again, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 scriptures where these things are referenced. He says, And the nations amassed to fight against Ariel. Ariel being another name for Mount Zion. Actually, it says the Gentiles, goyim. Now, there's two words for nations in Hebrew. Amim, which is nations. And also, goyim. Goyim means Gentiles, literally but it also means nations. So most translators translate nations. But think of us ourselves, because by definition in the Book of Mormon, we are called Gentiles. We are identified as the Gentiles, as we've covered in previous in previous podcasts. All who congregate at her stronghold to distress her. So Zion is going to be sieged, for sure, by the nations of the world. It says, There shall be as a dream seen in the night, like a hungry man who dreams he eats, but awakens famished. Like a thirsty man who dreams he drinks, but wakes up faint and craving. So shall be all the nations that amass to fight against Mount Zion, or the Gentiles who fight against Mount Zion. You know, all those instances in the Book of Mormon where the idea of fighting against Zion appears, they're all taken from, this,
0: from these verses in the Book of Isaiah, chapter 29. So the Book of Mormon prophets know, as we covered in our last podcast,
1: how there's going to be a great division among the Gentiles and among all nations, in fact,
0: either for or against Zion, or Babylon or for Zion. Of course, those Gentiles, those among us, Latter-day Saints, who fight against Zion,
1: are those also who unite with the great abominable church because if you're not one, you're the other. And we also saw how the power of God comes upon the saints and the covenant people of the Lord when those who are of the other side of the church of the devil threaten with annihilation or threaten with death those who are of the Lamb of God's church. Now next we come to number three, the Lord bears his arm to all nations. And we covered that already also in our last podcast or two previously. From Isaiah 52, 8 through 10 and other... Verses in Isaiah where the Lord talks about his arm and the Lord's bearing his arm. And this is covered in First Nephi 22, verses 10 11, 3 Nephi 16, verses 18 through 20, 3 Nephi 20, verse 32, and verses 34 and 35. Again, this is a very important scripture because the key to everything that happens in the end time is the catalyst of the end time scenario in the Book of Mormon and the Book of Isaiah. Hark, your watchmen lift up their voice. And of course, there are two kinds of watchmen in the book of Isaiah, reading from Isaiah 52, as I said. There are watchmen who are currently watchmen, and then there are watchmen who replace those who report what they see and hear. And they also seem to be translated beings because they, they labor day and night and they call upon the Lord day and night. Of course, We know that those who have power over the elements at some point will be translated beings, those servants of God who lead different groups of the exodus of God's people to Zion in the end time, at the same time that destruction is going on all around the world. These watchmen, these kings and queens of the Gentiles lead God's people to Zion. As one they cry out for joy, for they shall see eye to eye when Jehovah establishes Zion, or when Jehovah reestablishes Zion because it's one restoration. Now, of course, they see eye to eye because they've all had the same cosmic vision, so nobody can persuade them any different. They cry out for joy because it's the time of the restoration of the house of Israel, and they're happy about that, because the prophets prophesied it. They prophesied about their descendants of this very time, and now things are happening. And just put yourself in their place, you know. This is our day and age, and If we're going to be saviors on Mount Zion, we may be among those very watchmen, those kings and queens of the Gentiles, who bring to pass these marvelous events. Jehovah has bared his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. That is the catalyst. That all ends of the earth may see our God's salvation, because it's a preparation for the coming of salvation, which is the coming of Jehovah, who personifies salvation. As I said, righteousness precedes salvation, Righteousness, the servant, is a forerunner of salvation, the Messiah Christ. Break out altogether into song, you ruined places of Jerusalem. Jehovah has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. As we mentioned, Israel is going to be restored and receive promised lands. Those promised lands, of course, are the ruined places of of the great destructions that are happening worldwide, that either happened in the past or are happening in the end time. And these people re-inherit those lands. These are their own promised lands that they reinherit. When they fell away from God, they lost them. They came under a covenant curse. They were scattered and smitten and persecuted. But in the end, that time they re-inherit those places. They reinherit the lands of the Gentiles, all the nations of the Gentiles. That is one of the main themes of the book of Isaiah. Number four. Gentile kings and queens nurture Israel from Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23. We've read this before, but it is one of the main themes of the book of Isaiah. It's mentioned in the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 21, verses 22 and 23, 2 Nephi 6, verses 6 and 7, and 2 Nephi chapter 10, verse 9. Thus is my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles, or nations, raise my ensign to the peoples, And they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. And as we've covered before, they bring them in a new exodus to Zion from the four directions of the earth. And the hand that is lifted up and the ensign that is lifted up, we've talked about that also. And we'll again hear shortly. It is a servant of the Lord. It is the same arm of the Lord, the arm of righteousness. These other code names, hand and ensign, also refer to the servant. So when the Lord raises up his servant, empowers him, it is the same as lifting up his hand, his right hand of deliverance. And raises ensign to gather together the house of Israel, Zion. And the kings and queens of the
0: Gentiles, us latter these saints, us Ephraimites, are the ones who bring this to pass. Now number five an end-time exodus from throughout the earth, from Isaiah 11, verses 10
1: through 11, and verse 16. And this is covered in 2 Nephi chapter 21, verses 10 through 12, and verse 16, 2 Nephi 25, verse 17, and 2 Nephi 29, verse 1. So again, another prophecy of Isaiah that's quoted in multiple places in the Book of Mormon been talking about the last days or the end-time time preceding the coming of the Lord to reign upon the earth in that day the sprig of Jesse who stands for an ensign to the peoples shall be sought by the nations and his rest shall be glorious that's a person the sprig of Jesse or descendant of Jesse so to to speak a, a little guy and he stands for an ensign so he is the ensign very clearly right there he's the ensign by Isaiah's definition and Book of Mormon definition And then it says, In that day will my Lord again raise his hand to reclaim the remnant of his people, those who shall be left out of Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the islands of the sea. Because those are all the places in the ancient world where Israel was scattered. Of course, now in the end time, they've been scattered far and wide beyond those places as Israel has continued to be scattered throughout the earth and assimilated among the nations, or." scattered among the nations. Some of them have been left in ethnic groups that are identifiable as such, as ethnic groups that others have also assimilated. But the Lord knows them all and where they are, and he's going to bring them back at the time that he raises his hand and the ensign. It says in the next part of the passage from Isaiah, he will raise the ensign to the nations and assemble the exile of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. So here, the raising of the ensign and the raising of the hand are in parallel in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. And but the ensign is the Lord's servant, is the sprig of Jesse, the descendant of Jesse, the father of King David. Of course, Jesse itself is also a codename. So when we get into Isaiah, we learn more of the finer points of these things. See, So when the Lord raises up his servant, the sprig of Jesse, then is when these things begin happen and are set in motion. Then he continues and says, there shall be a pathway out of Assyria for the remnant of his people who shall be left, as there was for Israel when it came up from the land of Egypt. So they gather from the four directions of the earth, but also out of Assyria, which is the land of the north, which is where the ten tribes were scattered. So remember that it's two houses of Israel who are being gathered here. It is both Israel and Judah who are being gathered here from the four directions of the earth to Zion. In number six, we go to Jehovah's end-time servant being marred or disfigured from Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through 15. And this is quoted by Jesus in Third Nephi 21, verses 8 and 10. Of course, the servant is key to the whole thing. He's the arm of the Lord. He's the hand, the ensign, the right hand and the Ensign, the Sprig of Jesse, all one and the same individual. And we can show that from all the things that he does. And these are messianic roles, but they're not the messianic role of Jesus at all. They're all temporal events. In other words, they're physical, and they involve physical and spiritual restoration. They're not the messianic role of atoning for the transgression of God's people or of the sins of the world and so forth. These are all preparatory events for the coming of the Lord rain upon the earth. It says, My servant, being astute, shall be highly exalted. He shall become exceedingly eminent. In these verses, in um, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, and also Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, there are a lot of ancient heroes of Israel that typify the Lord's servant of the end time. Whereas the... Passages of Isaiah 53, 1 through 10 that are talking about the Lord Himself, not His servant, they have no such precedent. They talk about being a lamb to the slaughter and so forth, and talking about a vassal king. But they don't have these human types. You'll learn more about those things as you get into the book of Isaiah. So, like Solomon, he becomes exceedingly eminent but and highly exalted, but that's his ascent phase. And we've talked about that before. The ascent phase follows the descent phase and he has a horrible descent phase where he's tested to the limit. As it says here, he appalled many, his appearance was marred beyond human likeness, his semblance unlike that of men. So he becomes horribly disfigured by his enemies, those who try to destroy the work of the Lord and prevent him fulfilling his mission upon the earth. And that too has a type in King Uzziah had leprosy his face. And yeah, it will not be a pleasant scene to see him after he's been horribly disfigured by his enemies. Guess what? The Lord turns his situation around. Remember the covenant curses that come upon the enemies of God's people? So they come upon the enemies of individuals who are loyal to the Lord, who keep the terms of his covenants. And the curses of their covenants come upon their enemies when those enemies seek to destroy them. As it says here, So shall he yet astound many nations, or Gentiles, kings shutting their mouths at him, for what was not told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. These kings, of course, are a wordling to the kings and queens of the Gentiles. As it says here, they are Gentiles. And, of course, referring again to us Ephraimites who have come through the Gentile lineages, yet we have the birthright tribe. So. We have a mission to perform of restoring the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, and the Lamanites of today. And that says, What was not told them they shall see, what they had not heard they shall consider. These then being likely the new things that Isaiah talks about that refer to these kings and queens' end-time missions of restoring the house of Israel. So during the time that the servant comes and fulfills his mission upon the earth, these kings and queens of the Gentiles will be more properly informed of what their missions are that are under the terms of the Davidic covenant. And you can learn them now, and it's a great thing to get a head start on that because you'll be so much the more enlightened and accepting of the things that the servant teaches because, yes, you've already read the scriptures in Isaiah and Book of Mormon and searched them out to know what your role is going to be. And that role is to be saviors of men. it? Saviors, particularly of the house of Israel, the Jews, the 10 tribes, and Lehi's descendants. So, in summary, we have some of the main themes of the book of Isaiah that are key to understanding the Book of Mormon prophecies and understanding the whole Book of Mormon milieu and how they view the scriptures of God themselves. Because Isaiah spoke about all things, right? That Jesus said past, present, future, and also the fullness of the gospel. It's all in Isaiah. We've talked only about the prophetic events of Isaiah. The scriptures are also there that talk about the fullness of the gospel. They're also in Isaiah. we will have to cover those in another time. So the time frame of these events are when God gathers and restores his people of the house of Israel. And moving forward, do we see how the Book of Mormon relies on the prophecies of Isaiah in six major ways that we covered today? And the next time, do we understand the interplay between justice and mercy and Jesus' atonement? For recommended reading, we recommend End Time Prophecy or Judea Mormon Analysis. It talks about Jesus Atonement in chapter six of that book.
0: Thank you. We'll see you next time. Please share this with others. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn The Atonement of Jesus Christ. How do scriptures identify Jesus Christ as Israel's God, Jehovah? Do Latter-day Saints understand the interplay between God's divine justice and mercy?